Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the state historian at UConn Hartford and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. Two of Connecticut's most influential women, Beatrice Fox Auerbach, the owner of the largest privately owned department store in the United States at the time, and U.S. Congresswoman Chase Going Woodhouse, the second woman to be elected to the Congress from Connecticut, spent seven weeks traveling through 10 countries in the Middle East and Europe in 1949. Only three years after the end of World War II and one year after the founding of the new nation of Israel, Auerbach and Woodhouse were shown battlefields, refugee camps, and the ruins of German cities. Auerbach's diary entries reveal what she saw and experienced, civil war in Greece, Arab refugee camps in Transjordan, the value of using Hebrew in Israel, and the fear of rising anti-Semitism and communism in Germany. In this episode, Edited from a lecture given at the Jewish Historical Society of Greater Hartford, Dr. Tracy Wilson comments on Auerbach and Woodhouse's contribution to the development of women in leadership roles in Connecticut. Both women are in the Connecticut Women's Hall of Fame. So I want to think of tonight as an evening of possibility. And I want to think about, uh, to think about Beatrice Fox Auerbach Uh, how she represented possibility. It's different from hope, uh, which is more like a dream, I think. Uh, Possibility is something that can happen if you have a plan, if you act, if you do something. I wonder if you might see Beatrice Fox Auerbach that way as a woman of possibility. I'm, I'm going to talk today about her trip that she took, she called it a summer holiday. I just love this, this was on the diary, this is what she called it. Uh, with her delightful companion, uh, Chase Woodhouse, and the countries they traveled to, Greece, Turkey, Lebanon, Syria, Iran, Transjordan, Israel, Old Jerusalem, Switzerland, and Germany, August 18th to October 9th. So they're gone 53 days with 15 suitcases. Uh, So um, part of what I want to do is set you in the context of the trip, and then we'll uh, get to the trip. I've been studying Mrs. Auerbach um, since my wife Beth, who was the executive director at Our Farm for three years, asked me in 2015 to find out about Eleanor Roosevelt's visits to the farm. Uh, This led me to give a number of talks about her, the friendship between Beatrice and Eleanor, and the style and substance of her leadership in business and in women's rights. Two and a half years ago, I first started looking at the trips Mrs. Auerbach took. She was a world traveler, and I knew that she took a trip to Israel in 1949. Her trip and commentary on what she saw 70 years ago provide a provocative way to think about Israel and about nations today, and how to make connections with people to bridge cultures and to widen people's worlds. Today I'll talk about the trip that she and Congresswoman Chase Going Woodhouse took to the Middle East and Europe. The trip took them through 10 countries in the Middle East and Europe, and we know about this because of the diary that she wrote on this trip. So this document is held at the Connecticut Historical Society. It's truly a piece of history. Here's a page of her handwritten diary. Her writing isn't too bad, actually. Um, But 
Luckily, when she came back, her secretary transcribed it into a book which she had bound for her two daughters and her five grandchildren. Um, and what you see on the right here is what I read. Uh, is this diary is about 120 pages long. So in the first third of my talk, I'll be giving a context for her travels, and then the last two thirds will really be her voice as I read her words. They're a fascinating record of a professional woman in 1949 who captures a time and place just four years after the end of World War II and one year after the founding of Israel as an independent country. Might I say, a time of great possibility. As I read, uh, or as I read, I want you to be cognizant of the fact that this is a rough draft, a diary, and not revised or reworked. And I'd like to note that Mrs. Auerbach did not graduate from high school or college. I wonder what her motive was in keeping this record. Who had influence on her view of the international world? Who read it? And with whom did she share the trip beyond her nuclear family? How does travel today compare to this trip? How did this trip lead to four more grand excursions over the next decade? Okay, to set the context for the trip, uh, Mrs. Sauerbach uh, was the granddaughter of Gerson Fox, the founder of G. Fox, which becomes Harvard's main department store. Uh, she's the daughter of Moses and Teresa Fox. In 1911, uh, she marries George Auerbach. His father owned a department store in Salt Lake City. They met when they were young on a European trip that Beatrice and her sister Fanny were on with their parents. The couple moved back to Hartford in 1917 when Beatrice was 30 and had one child, after the Hartford store burned to the ground. She started working at the store in 1927 when she was 40, when her husband died. She had been married just 16 years, um, and she was 40 with two children aged 12 and 8. She took over the store in 1938 when her father died and led the store until 1965. G. Fox was the largest privately owned department store in the United States and the sixth largest store in the country by the mid-1950s. Auerbach employed as many as 5,000 workers at Christmas time. She was known as a businesswoman, or she would say a woman of business, and a philanthropist, a proponent for equal rights for women and developing women's leadership, a supporter of African-American rights, you can see her there with Jackie Robinson um, winning an award from the NAACP, and she would say that was one of the favorite awards that she won. Uh, a supporter of world community and the importance of world travel to help understand her place and the United States' place in the international world. By the time that she went on this trip in 1949, Auerbach had been president of GFOX for 11 years, and she was clearly an accomplished woman. In this press clipping from the New York Times, you can see that she had won the prestigious, I think you say, Toby Award, um, given to her for demonstrating that a department store can and must exert a positive social force in the community. This was the fifth time the award was given and was considered to be the highest honor one could achieve in the field of retail. She won it for her work as a retailer and for her work in the community. They noted that she had established the Auerbach major at Connecticut College for Women. 
created and headed the Beatrice Fox Auerbach Foundation, charitable and educational organization, chartered by the legislature. Established the Women's Service Bureau to train women for leadership positions. And I find this quote so interesting, which she said, I regard the store itself as a public servant of a community, the people of Connecticut. I wonder what retailers see this as their role in the community today. Her traveling partner was Chase Going Woodhouse. Woodhouse first came to Connecticut in 1934 at age 44. She was born in British Columbia to an American father and a Canadian mother. She went to the university at McGill and then studied for her PhD at the University of Berlin uh, but uh, had to leave because of World War I in 1914 and then went on to the University of Chicago. She married and her husband was also an academic, but they lived, seemed to live pretty separate lives, finally leading to a divorce in 1948 when she was in her late 50s. Woodhouse was three years younger than Mrs. Auerbach. She became a professor of economics at Connecticut College for Women in New London for 19 years, starting in 1934. She ran for Secretary of State in 1940 and won a two-year term by a larger margin than any other candidate on the ballot. She was the first female Democrat elected Secretary of State in Connecticut. In 1945, she ran for the House of Representatives in the 2nd District, which included New London, and she won. They seemed to make fun of each other. These There were, I think, 10 women who served in Congress at that time. Um, and they sort of laughed at each other being called congressmen. Uh, but Ms. Mrs. Roosevelt campaigned for her, and it seems Chase is the person who introduced Eleanor Roosevelt to Mrs. Auerbach. At that time, there were 10 women among the 535 who served in the 79th Congress, less than 2% of the total number. Today, we have 131 women who serve. She was only the second woman to represent the state in Congress, and the first from the Democratic Party. Uh, the first woman was Claire Booth Luce, who was actually sitting in Congress at that time, so Connecticut had two women uh, serving in Congress in 1945. I don't, I don't know if we've ever had that again. Maybe when Nancy Johnson was. Um, her background in monetary policy and finance led her to a seat on the Committee on Banking and Currency where she advocated international economic cooperation. Woodhouse was an economist and an internationalist. From this seat on the Banking and Currency Committee, Woodhouse helped execute the Bretton Woods Agreements, which created the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. She lost her seat in 1947, but remained involved in public service and became the director of Mrs. Auerbach's Women's Service Bureau uh, from 1945 to 1981. And this was located in the department store up on the 13th floor, I think? 11th floor. 11th floor. There wasn't 13 floors. 11. Only 11th floor. Sorry. 11th floor. Um, in the spring of 1948, she spent, so she was not in office, she spent three months in Germany as an economic advisor to General Lucius Clay for the Allied Military Governor of Germany. As Clay's economic advisor, she toured the Allied zones of occupied Western Germany and kept closely informed about reconstruction and rehabilitation efforts. This job offered her input into policymaking 
And with that experience, her involvement with the Democratic Party, she was again elected in 1948, running ahead of President Truman. Statewide Democrats regained a majority of Connecticut's House seats. This detail is important because when she and Auerbach went on this trip, she was an elected official in the federal government traveling to check on the military occupation and economic development and to keep tabs on Cold War issues. When they, they were in Ankara, Turkey, Beatrice wrote, Chase was being used as a sounding board for the reaction of Congress, and I must admit that she shone, and I felt knew her stuff. Only hope that the majority of our lawmakers have her intelligence. Truly, I'm learning a lot and understanding many things that I did not before. During her second term in the House, Woodhouse regained her seat on the Banking and Currency Committee and remained a strong supporter of Truman's foreign policies. In 1949, she supported the ratification of NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, our first permanent overseas military alliance. And she saw the Marshall Plan as an effective tool of economic recovery in Europe and as a tool to use against the threatened onrush of communism. Based on her extensive travels in Germany, she declared that the 1948 Berlin air, airlift, which supplied blockaded Soviet-occupied East Berlin with food and supplies, was worth every cent of the cost because it proved to Moscow that the Western Allies mean business in protect, protecting open access to the German capital. Woodhouse, like Auerbach, was about building relationships and about possibilities. Historians write about the post-World War II era as a time, and you know I think this is changing, but certainly as a high school teacher and when you get a high school textbook, uh, they talk about this time period as a time when women were in the home and out of the public sphere. And yet studying these two women, I guess I should say these three women, it is far from the case. They were leaders from the 1920s into the 1960s. And though they did not call themselves feminists, they indeed did define the movement for women's rights in so many ways. Many histories chronicle women going back into the home after World War II, finding their way in suburbia outside of the workforce with no organizations to build women's leadership. This study is changing the way I would teach about and I think and think about women in the 40s, 50s, and early 60s. For instance, Auerbach's Women's Service Bureau was an organization that helped build women's leadership. And 11 years after Woodhouse moved to the state, Auerbach asked her to be the head of this organization. Auerbach endowed the organization in 1949 with $6 million. Uh, its purpose was to educate women about their opportunities to shape their own lives and influence the lives of others. The organization helped women learn parliamentary procedure and how to run meetings. For Auerbach, a key part of the women leaders' education was to expose them to the world outside of Connecticut. Through her travels, she educated her workers and inspired them to see themselves as part of a bigger world. And this organization served as a vehicle to develop deep relationships with women, in her case, Eleanor Roosevelt and Chase Going Woodhouse. This trip, so now we're onto the trip. This trip is the first of six long trips Auerbach took with Woodhouse in the 40s and 50s, over a 10-year time period. As I mentioned before, Beatrice was taken on several trips to Europe as a child, and at least one that took her to the Middle East, 
And as I read through her diary, she was in Lebanon remembering what was there 40 years before. And she considered these trips to be an integral part of her education. Here you can see the trip she took, all of them at least seven weeks in duration. And she traveled with Chase on each of these trips. So the South America one, I think, was more like 12 weeks. And she was 72 years old. And uh, it's amazing to read what she did. And in this one, though, I, um, this, the diary that uh, for this trip is 120 pages long. And I'm, not, I'm just picking pieces out of it to uh, read to you. But one of the things that struck me was I would say almost every night was 12.30, hitting the bed. And then they would get up and be going at 8 o'clock the next morning. I mean, they, it was unbelievable how much they did in a day. So, our back is 62 years old. I'm not sure how old she is in this picture. Maybe a little younger. Um, and Woodhouse was 59. Woodhouse is a little older in this picture. Auerbach had been a widow for 22 years. Woodhouse was divorced just a year before after being married for over 30 years, but mostly living separately from her husband. Each had two children. Beatrice's daughters both grown and married and five grandchildren um, and having been a widow for 22 years at this point. Uh, her two daughters grown and married and Chase married with two children. Uh, Chase had two children as well. Flying for regular citizens is a pretty new thing, and these women were hardy to do that. They traveled for seven and a half weeks with 15 suitcases. And you can imagine she had to have the right outfits or the right event. Um, and as we know, Auerbach, president of one of the largest department stores in the US, Woodhouse, one of 10 women in Congress. The plan was to go to 10 countries. You can see here on this map I made, I know it's not so easy. Uh, uh, they had 21 stops, which I listed down the side, over there 53 days away, starting in Athens, then uh, starting in Athens, Greece, three cities in Turkey, Cyprus, which was a British colony at that time, Beirut, Lebanon, Damascus, Syria, Tehran, Iran, back to Cyprus, back to Damascus, Amman, Transjordan, Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, Zurich, Switzerland, and then seven cities in Germany. They set out from our farm, and you, here you see her summer home built in the early 1940s, which was up on Cider Hill, but just recently torn down by the state for the new state park there. They left on August 18, 1949, with her daughter Dorothy. Georgette was not feeling well, she recorded and they went to New York City, where they stopped at the Lebanese consul to get a visa. And this is uh, a quote of hers, which was difficult to obtain as Lebanon, like all other Arab countries, does not like Jews. They drove out to Idlewild Airport, and uh, this just sort of fascinates me. Idlewild Airport just opened in, uh, the 1949 is the first full year of its operation of transatlantic flights. And this plane, she mentions, she said, we flew on a strato cruiser. Um, and this had its first flight in 1947. So um, she's a real pioneer on the, uh, on the airplane transatlantic trip. 
The first days of their trip took them to Athens, where they heard stories about the German occupation from 1941 to 1945. In her words, they, they saw the cruelties followed by the degree of unhappiness which only de despair can produce, the steadfast courage of loyal Greeks, the ordeal of days of starvation which they had to endure to their liberation in the last war. It was an experience with a capital E to listen to the atrocities which the Germans and their occupation had perpetrated. They spent six days in Greece, some sightseeing, and then the general that was there took them to the battlefront of the Greek Civil War, and they spent two days on the front. Um, seems unusual. Um, after two and a half weeks of, uh, and from Greece, they uh, went for two and a half weeks to Turkey, where they stopped in Istanbul, Bursa, and Ankara. Then they made their way to Beirut. They expressed their interest in going to Iraq and Iran, but had no visas. So they had to go to Cyprus, and uh, two days later were on their way to a three-day stay in Tehran, Iran. So uh, now I'm going to read directly from her diary. Um, this reading comes as they made their way back west to Damascus, Syria, and then to Amman, Jordan. They spent two days in Amman, Jordan, um, and it had been a mandate of the British and got its full independence in 1946, and it too was a new country. Though I have to say I don't know a lot about the history of Jordan, but um, one of the things she says is that there's still a lot of English people in charge there. Um, so she says, our passports were demand demanded all along the line. Each town seems to have custom regulations, and each officer's strict instructions to look for proper visas. Our chauffeur was one of these fatalists. He first knocked down a horse on the road, then almost collided with a camel, and made the poor Bedouin scamper from the roadside. The ground was stony to a point that Connecticut fields looked like meadows. The ground is of lava formation and most desolate. We passed thousands of camels and goats. The camels silhouetted across the skyline, as in some photograph exhibit, are a beautiful sight. The poor Arab mud villages, the desolate Bedouin camps with their own peculiar type of black tent where family life goes on and generations are born, live, and die. Added to all of this today are huge camps of Arab refugees, the victims of the new nation of Israel. Each side has its story. Each side has partial right to the woes, hatred, insecurity. Fear of the unknown seemed to me just as it did in biblical times when the Jews were forced to flee, just as the Hitlers and Nazis forced this generation to its doom. Who says that these Arabs, who had 2,000 years of living in Palestine, should in turn have to flee from their homes Families divided, possessions forced to be left behind. It is a queer world, and what is right and what is wrong must not be left for a person such as me to decide. God only can be the judge. The next section tells us of the trip from Amman to Jerusalem, uh, September 18th. 
We passed huge encampments of the Arab Legion, an army officered by British, the head of which is Ghulab Pasha, the successor to Lawrence of Arabia. There were thousands of Arab refugees, and way down below sea level, after passing over the famous Jordan River and through the town of Jericho, there was a refugee camp of enormous proportions. Then farther on, another camp conducted by the YMCA, which I never knew the YMCA ran refugee camps, uh, which is said to be doing excellent work. The International Red Cross was also working there, all trying to alleviate and relieve the tremendous misery seen on every hand. Chase's and my insides had been so shaken and disturbed that we just couldn't take any more of the same misery, filth, and despair, knowing one could do nothing constructive about it at all. So we were ready to accept the invitation of Amir Pasha, the head of the precinct of Palestine, who had sent word desiring our presence. We were just across the street from his office and were greeted by a kindly elderly gentleman and offered all of the hospitality of this city. He immediately set the wheels in motion so that not only was the Mosque of Omar opened for us, but we were escorted to each of the historical monuments by officials. We were taken to the Grand Mufti, who was a cute old man and who out of the folds of his robe from deep pockets produced and presented to each of us candy this with the same twinkle in his eye that Eddie Eichberg has when he hands out his sweetmeats to the young people at home. So I was wondering, does anybody know who he is, Eddie Eichberg? So I just looked him up, and up came this Chamber of Commerce booklet. It seems as though he owned a shoe store at 941 Main Street. So it must have been right across the street. And so, well, it's spelled, she spells it, a-I-S-C-A, A-I-S-H-B-E-R-G. Uh, but the idea that, you know, she is the president of this big company and she knew the man across the street who owned the shoe store and knew that he gave, gave candy away from his, uh, I just thought that was a, such a, a great detail and told that much about her. There was much conversation, some in English, some in French, and it seems as though she was fluent in French. She talks about French, speaking French a lot. Um, but coffee drinking in all languages is pretty much the same. And then with an escort of four dignitaries of the Muslim faith, we were on our way. The quietness of the city frightens you. It is so different from the years gone by. The Mosque of Omar, which is sacred to Mohammedans, Jews and Christians alike, is beautiful. There are scars of the shelling and shattered priceless stained windows. The rock on which Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice was shown. The place where Mary left Jesus while she made a trip was also shown. We saw the old Jewish wailing wall, which seems now to be enclosed by the buildings surrounding it and without the human element of the old Jews in their robes and their chanting and wailing. It is nothing more than an old discarded wall. We were turned over to other dignitaries and taken to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where we saw the tomb where Jesus was buried and rose from the dead. We saw the place where he started carrying the cross, the spot, the spot where he ascended, the chapel of St. Helena. But the most impressive sight was the Mohammedan gentleman of education and great dignity acting as a guide through the church, which is held by Greek Orthodox, 
by the Armenians and by the Roman Catholics, and where, at least outwardly, peace exists between them. If that can be done in one place that is so intensely sacred, then why can't it be done throughout the world? We finally reached Tel Aviv, a busy city, modern in its concept, but poor in its beauty. There are no large public buildings, no big libraries or parliament building, or any of the hallmarks to denote that is indeed the capital of a new state. Everyone is busy. The streets are crowded. Traffic moves without the aid of police or signals. It has a parkway that is shaded, which is a great luxury in the city of scant water supply. And here mothers take their children in perambulators. Young people play. And this is the only semblance of a park that I was able to see. This park was known as the Rothschild Boulevard. And near it, one finds the main business thoroughfare called Allenby Road after the British general, but nothing pretentious and no attempt to hide the austerity on which this little nation is founded. So um, they arrive and then they need to settle them into a hotel. The hotel Katie did is a small unpretentious hotel, hostel, and as we were unable to procure here only one small room, which was so small that it actually could not physically store our luggage. <laughs> Uh, we decided we would not keep it, but would go to sleep in the country at the Sharon Hotel. This is a beautiful modern seashore hotel, difficult at the moment to reach as a new road is being built and the old one winds in and out and takes three quarters of an hour of as fairly fast driving as the road would permit. But the quietness and luxury were well worth the effort of getting there. Uh, in the meantime, we stopped at our embassy, expecting letters from home, but nothing there. The cable, however, from Saul greeted us, and knowing that you are all right is the important thing. So off we went to lunch, with which neither that nor any other meal we had during our stay in Tel Aviv was good, as all people seem to be on an austerity regime, which consists of soup, fish, potatoes, some kind of pudding, or a meager portion of compote of fruit. The spirit of Israel is the thing, and the two days we spent there are full of impressions. I'm not going to divide the days into hours, but instead will try to give you some of these impressions while they are fresh in my mind, and my mind is full of them. First, I neither saw nor sensed any luxury. Everyone seemed to dress in khaki. Not because they liked it, but because it is cheap. Shorts with bare legs for the men, as the washing requires little water. The women wore no hats. There are very few private automobiles and all types of people. By that I mean racial types. Never would you believe that they are all Jews, as their features are so different, resembling as they do the countries from which they came. Blondes from the north, big blonde humans from Hungary, and you could recognize the German, the Italian, and the French. It is astonishing, and all speaking and talking one language, Hebrew, with not even one syllable that is familiar to the ear. Um, she goes on to say, these Israelis are not Zionists. They speak of Zionism as we understand it in the same tone that our young people here speak of the gay 90s. There is something else and something new that has taken its place. It is interesting and intensive nationalism not based on religion at all. 
To me, the young people do not seem religious, and as the Jewish New Year was about to take place, I deliberately asked each person I spoke to if they were going to the synagogue, and the invariable reply was an emphatic no. The question of Judaism has come to mean freedom from a sense of difference with the people around them, a definite belief that by being Jews, they will not be reminded of it constantly that they will have no feeling of inferiority or superiority, but just live out their individual lives as they themselves believe their lives should be lived. They have a great urge to fulfill their promises, and when you speak of the vast number of immigrants that constantly pour in, and perhaps question the wisdom of not regulating immigration, the answer is, we promised. We are doing the best we can. They, uh, they ended up spending 15 days in Germany. Here, Woodhouse was reviewing and evaluating the role of the United States in occupied Germany. And then there's one point where the first time after being together for like 40 days, they actually went in separate uh, directions. But she wasn't on official business. And this next section, um, uh, as I said before, I have a difficult time imagining what, what it must have been like to travel from Israel, the Jewish homeland, to Germany. And one of their first stops was Hitler's Berchtesgaden, um, his eagle's nest. So on September 25th, they traveled there. She says, uh, we passed bicycles and motor buses full of holiday-minded people and arrived at Berchtesgaden at lunchtime at the beautiful hotel taken over by the US Army and used as a guest and rest house during our occupation. After viewing the garden, we went on to see the ruined barracks of the Hitler elite guard and the home of Hitler and Goering. The ruins gave evidence of great luxury, but I must admit, excellent design of architecture. The famous big window looks out on a view of beautiful mountains with a glimpse of Salzburg in the distance. We could not linger too long, nor did we have a desire to in the wreckage, but instead drove up to the starting place for the Eagle's Nest, a mountain retreat on the edge of Germany, looking into Austria. After a lift of about 150 feet, you find yourself in and up in what is really the Eagle's Nest. It is an insight into a man's mind that during the first year of the war, 1938 and 39, he should take over 2,000 men and have them build this play toy for his personal use. By September 28th, they had made their way to Berlin, where the two women went to experience the US occupation of Germany under the office of the military government in power from January 1st, 1946 to December 5th, 1949. I'm getting near the end. Dressed and breakfasted, there was no decision this time of what to wear, as I had not brought anything, but I was waiting at 9 a.m. and then began two memorable days. With an army car, we had a hasty tour of what had once been a proud city. Nothing I had previously heard prepared me for the great desolation and the ruins of what once had been a world capital. There was rubble, shambles, with men and women clinking and cleaning bricks, figures walking or bicycling, humans furtively looking for cigarette butts, and grass overgrowing in what was once beautiful parkways and parks a picture of hopelessness that grips one. I went to um, the military government where a group of trade union women were meeting and waiting for me. They were a poverty-stricken group, but tried to hide that poverty. 
Nowhere has my sympathy been so aroused. There they each told me, some in German and some in broken English, what they hoped to do. Their bitterness against Russia was real. They felt deserted by their own countrymen and women and are wondering whether there can ever be a future. And not saying that they have not contributed to their present state, but who can hate down and outers? And it's the great masses of bourgeois that arouse one's sympathy. Unless in some way we can encourage them and make them understand the dignity of a human being, the balance of power that we all feel must be Germany's because of the geographical position she possesses. Unless this can be accomplished, we might as well move out and go home. I am convinced that we cannot move even though we are not appreciated, and it is only lip service of appreciation that we are being given. We must remain there. We must in order for these people to truly feel and know what democracy is, or fail and see communism take over. So the two women traveled for eight more days in Germany, studying and experiencing the occupation, the destruction, and feeling the palpable fear of communism. I'm amazed by these two women willing to travel for 53 days through war zones, through places where there were no roads, no electricity, no running water, to Israel, the Jewish homeland, and then to occupied Germany, where much of the country had been destroyed, where the government had systematically killed some six million Jews. The war that had ended just four years before they went on their trip. Both Woodhouse and Auerbach had an abiding interest in the ideals of democracy and how citizens could learn how to be active participants in a, in a democratic society. Auerbach and Woodhouse's identity as Americans and small d Democrats comes out loud and clear in this chronicle. These journals make me think about Auerbach's identity as a Jew, from her empathy for the Arab refugees, to her thinking about people in all religions getting along, to her concern about the manners of the new Israelis and their lack of religious practice, and finally to her empathy with the woman in Germany who suffered from anti-Semitism. This was a complicated time and a lot to think about. Auerbach was back just two days when an article about her appeared in the Hartford Current. She and her trip were a story. The article says that the U.S. must make, that uh, uh, Auerbach said that the U.S. must maintain its influence and support in Europe for a long time to come, live up to our responsibilities as a world power. She said, I don't think we are striving hard enough as citizens. We have to teach democracy by living it and not just by spouting it. The possibility. In her afterward to her diary, on the last page she, she writes, what started out to be a holiday became more in the nature of, of studies in human beings. I hope my presentation leaves you with more questions than answers about our back and her travels and how she defined her place in the world. And if the history is good, it helps us to reflect on our possibilities in the world as we strive to live meaningful lives. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Dr. Tracy Wilson and Estelle Kafer, Executive Director of the Jewish Historical Society of Greater Hartford. 
Dr. Wilson received her PhD in history from Brown University and serves as the West Hartford Town Historian. To listen to the full lecture or view the videotape, contact the Jewish Historical Society of Greater Hartford. The Auerbach Diaries are in the collection of the Connecticut Historical Society, Hartford, and the papers of Chase Going Woodhouse are in the collection of the Dodd Center, University of Connecticut at Stores. This episode was produced by Mary Donahue and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan. To hear more episodes of Grading the Nutmeg, subscribe on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Play, SoundCloud, or at gradingthenutmeg.libsyn.com. And for more great Connecticut history stories, subscribe to Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history at ctexplored.org. This is Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us next time for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg.